Welcome to this week's episode of Extraordinary Entrepreneurs Together, the podcast for entrepreneurs interested in fast growth and funding, powered by EHE Capital. I think one of the the big topics is the who, not how. That's been quite transformational, hasn't it? And I think it might be worth hearing a bit about that from you, Shannon. I think we probably touched on it in previous podcasts, but yes, the book. (laughs) Best-selling book, I think it should be, isn't it? Yeah, at this point, it's over 140,000 copies, which is not too shabby in eight months or so, which is really exciting. So I'll just give a little bit of an orientation to who, not how, because one of the biggest challenges for entrepreneurs is often delegating. I mean, Dan said this the other day in a workshop that I was in with him. He goes, delegating is one of the worst hows that entrepreneurs have to do. It's just, it's one of the the biggest chores, the least fun thing to do. But who, not how is a fundamentally different concept. And I really need to say where it came from. So it came out of a phenomenal conversation of which there are many between Dan Sullivan and Dean Jackson. And Dean Jackson is a just phenomenal marketer and, you know, really insightful, very, very good at simplifying things down. So they were on their Joy of Procrastination podcast And Dean says something to the effect of, oh, I realize one of the reasons why I procrastinate is that, you know, I think about taking on something new, this new venture, this new project, this new uh, skill, and I don't know how to do it. So I start to procrastinate. He said, what I'm learning to figure out is actually that I should go and figure out who knows how to do what this activity is and work with them first and have they already know the how. And then that is how Who Not How got born, which is really, really fun. And it was a number of years ago now. So the concept has really, really developed to the point where we wrote one of our small quarterly books on that that's for our clients. But now Ben, through the partnership with Ben Hardy, has produced a major market book, which is super fun to have more people understand the transformative idea of Who Not How. And what I find about entrepreneurs that's kind of fascinating is that they're incredibly resourceful and are great at finding who's. There's just, I think, finding really good talent is on most entrepreneurs' radar screens. You know, some, yes, there's a few, I'm going to say mad scientists working, slaving away over a Bunsen burner somewhere, (laughs) cooking up a new idea. But most most people are scanning the environment all the time for really talented people. And if you appreciate your own talents, by the way, you can't find talented twos unless you also appreciate your own first. That's a really key skill. And most entrepreneurs know that they're really good at one, maybe two things, not 50, not 60. And so, and the success of growing your business is actually around finding really talented who's. And by the way, this does end up sounding like a Dr. Seuss book at some point. (laughs) Because we like to talk about Whoville and getting hooed up and you know all the things, it becomes quite fun. It's it's a playful way to look at it. But who not how is transformational, as you said, Gary. And it really is about instead of figuring out, trying to figure out the how, which for personally can be very de-energizing outside of those very few activities at which we are, we are the actual who's for that. And instead looking for, so instead of that de-energizing path. How can we find a who? How can we clearly communicate what we're looking for? That's something we should probably talk about. And then together through that teamwork, 
you know, your your bigger idea, your the thing that you're asp- aspiring to actually comes true between that collaboration between your idea, your clarity of, of specifying the result, their incredible capabilities, and probably there's more than one. And that actually is what produces the much bigger, better result. So that in essence is what who, not how is all about. What about you, Georgia? Would you, would you become an influencer if you had the choice? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair to say. Georgia is an influencer. Her, her podcast now is in, I think, in the top 100 business podcasts in the world. Seriously? Right. Yeah. yeah. I've come to the right place. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Guy. <laughs> um, no problem. But, you know, whether, whether there's listeners out there asking themselves that question, would I become an influencer based on your experience and what you think an influencer is? Whether people believe in this market or not, whether you choose to become an influencer, you've had the choice or not, Gen Zs now don't have that choice. You know, people are now creating Instagram pages for their babies. And whether people are disputing this or not, the next generation of people are born influencers. You know, to add some context, my friend Jay Quickenden, who I play charity football with, his baby is less than a year old and has over 50,000 followers. He's already influencing thousands of people every day and he can't even walk or talk yet i mean that's crazy right so when i look at tv and radio and billboards they're ridiculously overrated their targeting efforts are spray and pray and for me it's more of an ego thing to say look at me on that billboard or look at us on this tv for me and that's excluding the fact it's overpriced intrusive and impossible to track so for me, the future of advertising is not necessarily just based on reach. It's, it's really based on engagement. And who better to create content than the exact same people it's designed to attract for me? And if we look at the results now, 72% of people have made a purchase decision from something they've seen on Instagram. So when I look at what my vision is for Social Plug, I want to give brands of all shapes and sizes the ability to be celebrated through people. And my USP as a company is to facilitate for every single marketing channel in every single content format and then store, aggregate, and predict the outcome of marketing through people on my platform where brands can, of all shapes and sizes, quite confidently celebrate their business regardless of what their knowledge is of any type of social media platform and allow the people, the influencers to do the rest. We'll measure the results, present it, and eventually... Think of like Facebook ads. I'd like to think myself as that, but through people. Bridget, do you want us to go uh, to go through the various uh, points, or uh, shall we keep it mysterious? <laughs> <laughs> we can keep it mysterious at this point and dive into it a bit deeper. And the problem that we've got as well is. So female founders got a whopping record-breaking 2.8% of VC funding globally at their peak. And that was just before the pandemic. And then that has dropped significantly to 2.3%. So the share of the funding has dropped dramatically as a result of COVID. And it is down to, you know, as, as Amber said, it's down to your network. So the investors themselves chose to, rather than investing in something new and something unknown to double down the investments that they already had, which meant that female and diverse founders were left out in the cold once again. And if we look at the 
just looking at how the traditional sectors will, a funding sector will change, it's going to take hundreds of years. So we need to be able to be much more proactive about how we do this. And it's really interesting because it has to be systemic bias that is leading us to make these decisions. And systemic bias is quite difficult for people to recognise when they're in it. So it's not as if we necessarily believe that everyone is actively withholding money from women, but there are systemic biases that we need to educate people about and we need to be able to do something about. One of the issues that we've got is we don't have enough investment from women. So if you look at the VC landscape as well, although in the junior positions you're seeing more uh, women come into the sector, the senior positions are the the real decision-making decisions. We've still got a weighted amount of men at the top. And then there's been research done. So one, as Amber said, it's the deal flow. It's how do you get in front of the investor in the first place? And that is having the right network. And when it's an all-male, largely all-male network, it, that means that, you know, it is, it is biased towards men's favour. And the second one is, as Amber said, and we can talk a bit more about, is what do you do when you're in front of an investor? And the bias comes from investors full stop, whether they're female or male, by the way. It's just, as we said, systemic bias. So this is kind of how we are. Across every field, women are treated based on their experiences and men are treated based on their potential. So when you're in a pitching process, that bias tends to fall out and it means that men are asked promotional questions. It's more about what are you going to do when you achieve this goal? Whereas women, it's much more of a case of how are you going to do it? Justify, please, with us how you're going to make this. Which also leads on to a difference in between an investor choosing if they're looking at potentially they might have seen a, a, a female pitch or a pitch from a female founder and a pitch from a male founder, that the woman will use far more statistics. She'll be much more evidence-based in her pitching, whereas a man will stand up and share, share a grand vision. And this grand vision is more intoxicating for the investors to, to look at and see, oh, here's a chance for something special, which we can see clearly that there's a flaw in that decision-making. So women tend to be called having a gender confidence gap, but I think that's a misunderstanding. I think if one has a much more realistic view of what they will achieve and do achieve, and the other one has a luxury of people investing in their potential and therefore can paint a big story. What advice would you give entrepreneurs when they're looking for high growth capital, particularly from private equity companies? Have you got any little gems that you sort of repeatedly come across that would that would help prospective entrepreneurs? Really, the first thing to do is not is people shouldn't be at all afraid of private equity because that is, you know, partnering with the right private equity partner, if you like, and I use the word partner carefully. There, you know, it has been a has been a really sort of well proven method to help. You know, already successful businesses grow, but grow you know more quickly and create significant value. So I think the first thing is not to be not to be overly concerned by tapping into the network that certainly certainly the likes of LDC have. That can be very helpful in unlocking new routes to growth, on new ideas, on, on people with different experiences, if you like, or possibly possibly expansion by acquisition or even internationally. The number one issue we look for, I think, when we're looking at an entrepreneur in particular is, is passion and ambition and, and, a, and a well thought through growth story. Every business that we invest in needs to have a growth story 
that's super important. But clearly articulating what you know, what, what where the growth story will be delivered, how it will be delivered, and why particular entrepreneur or the management team that you're looking at are, are capable of doing that is is really really important. I think Gary. So it's particularly you know that's that's interesting because often people think about numbers when they think about private equity and investments etc. But the number one and two you look for is that passion and the ambition to grow. They're the two yeah, things we, that I've taken from you. I think so. Yeah, I, I think we, we we look more. We do look at the numbers, uh, and, and you'd expect us to because we're in a financial organisation. Yeah, plenty of people that work within the private equity industry generally and, and LDC for sure who who do understand numbers, and we'll look at the numbers at some point. But that, that's not where we start. We certainly at LDC, and not not every private equity firm takes this stance. In sort of horse racing parlance, we we back the jockey, not the horse. So we're always looking. The, the number one issue for us is to try and back the right management team, because you know the, the view we've taken and 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 uh, you know having backed, as I say, over six hundred companies in you know over forty years, is that a good management team. You know, keep you on the straight and narrow when times get tough, and they will manage out difficult situations. And um, and and it's more important getting the management team right than than anything else in, in our view. That's good. I agree. I think it's that's absolutely the number one to look for. Uh, is there a number two behind that, Rich? Or I think we start with the management team, but then uh, you know very quickly. And, and most entrepreneurs want to get onto this. Is actually then our, you know working out what their particular business model is so i think clearly articulating what the business model is why, why the business is, is in a good position why it's well positioned for growth and why they're well positioned to help that business grow all of those things come into it so and, and there's there's such a, a wide range of different types of businesses sectors business models that there's no there's then no one size fits all but we, we generally start with 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 a management team and then there's all sorts of things that flow from that in terms of you know what their track record is in previous businesses. You know how, yeah. how they, you know what's what's gone on historically for like how they've managed the current business situation to get to to, to, to where it's at. Why it is there's a, a moment to have a deal right now. So there's a whole raft of issues around the sort of deal dynamics. Yes, yes. Uh, which we, we definitely start with. We, we we certainly start front and squarely with 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 the management team. So management business model, and then there's a whole raft of things like the market and how unique they are. They're not commoditized, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, what do you for sure? Once you once you drill down, you know, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of we, we <laughs> yeah. will absolutely we will absolutely drill down into uh, you know a company's market position, what its USPs are, what its barriers to entry are, what its competition are doing, what its you know how its margins look compared to its competition. So yes, yeah. we will definitely drill down into the market position and we'll drill down into the business itself as well in terms of operations and you know eventually we will of course we'll come on to the numbers and the financials and what the financial track record is so there's a whole raft of other things that flow from there but we still start with with you know the entrepreneur himself or the, or the management team as a, as a starting point thank you for listening to this episode of extraordinary entrepreneurs together visit the ehe capsule website ehe.capital for further insights and to join the EHE community.